Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stephen Oney is a man who's made his living writing about men. His stories and profiles of actor Harrison Ford, Atlanta architect John Portman, and many others have run in Esquire, Time, GQ, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. But Oney said it was his feminist agent who urged him to publish his stories of fighters, creators, actors, and desperados together as a book. That book, A Man's World, is now out in paperback, just in time for Father's Day. Steve Oney spoke about A Man's World with GPB's Bill Nygut when the book was first published. Bill started by asking Steve about his Georgia roots. Before we talk about the book... You now live, I think, in the Hollywood Hills, don't you, and have yes. for quite some time. Yes, for 15 years. Um, but with that in mind, let's establish your Georgia credentials. You grew up in Atlanta. You're an Atlanta boy. I was not born here. I cannot answer the question, where did your daddy hunt, uh, effectively. Uh, he hunted someplace else. But I went to high school in Atlanta, Peachtree High School, now defunct, out in DeKalb County, and... I attended the University of Georgia as a journalism student. I think you've said in an essay uh, that you wrote some time ago that at the time, coming out of Peachtree High School, going to the University of Georgia was kind of a consolation prize. You described it uh, in an article as uh, everybody wanted to go to Emory, and if you couldn't get in there, you went to UGA. At the time, Playboy had an annual back-to-college issue, and there would always be a full page on party schools and they would be ranked. And at the bottom of the page, there would be an asterisk and it would list the University of Georgia ineligible because they're professionals. (laughs) And even though this was the early 1970s and a vestige of the counterculture was still in place in Athens, it was a big old fashioned Southern party school. It was fraternities, sororities. It was old South uh, every spring where The KAs and the SAEs would put on Confederate uniforms and march down the street with their dates. And um, I really wasn't that big a part of it. I worked for the student literary magazine, and which was strange in its own right. Impressions? The Impression, the Georgia Impression. How's that for a great college magazine name? Embarrassing. But uh, we ran some great stuff. Uh, It was the heyday of the new journalism, the heyday of Tom Wolfe and Gay Talese and Joan Didion and John McPhee, and I was reading everything I could by all of those people and more. And then I was trying to put it in practice in the little quarterly University of Georgia magazine. What do you mean for for listeners? Because we haven't talked about the new journalism the way we used to. Um, What was it in in that style of writing that attracted you back then? And the reason I ask this is because... um, this is all part of the formative years in which you were thinking about the kind of pieces you were going to be writing and the essays that have made you one of the most respected uh, essays uh, in the country. It was the stylishness of the writing, the ability to use novelistic tools in nonfiction to create scenes, to write flashbacks, to introduce characters, to describe what people looked like and how they acted. Hemingway once said that every piece of good writing has to answer just one question. What was the weather like? And he meant that figuratively. And new journalism was trying to do 
trying to answer that question with very factual reporting. So when Tom Wolf would describe the crowd at a stock car race or uh, the party at uh, Leonard Bernstein's house with the Black Panthers, which he so famously sent up in um, Radical Chic, those descriptions were based on his incredible research. He would be there every moment taking notes, blending into the background and absorbing all that he saw and heard so he could come back and give you a accurate uh, account that had all the details and made you feel like you were there uh, with the gossip and the heat and the what people were drinking and smoking. Another writer I much revered during that period, uh, Nora Ephron, uh, she said that a writer should be a wallflower at the orgy. You want to be invited. You want to be where the heat and the action are, but you're a writer. Uh, so you're there taking notes. You're not participating. Uh, and I just found that to be very, very alluring. I was in a, and it was an answer to my academic dilemma. I was by nature an English major, and but I didn't see how I could ever make a living uh, teaching English, and I didn't want to teach. But I also didn't want to be Johnny Deadline. I didn't want to work on a daily newspaper pounding out pieces. I wanted to find what I thought was the middle ground, and magazine writing was the middle ground for me. Let's talk about a man's world. Let's start with the title. We are living in a time when we are incredibly aware of the justifiable and important effort that women are making to find their place in the world, to assert um, themselves. And, um, and, it's, and it's something that occupies a lot of space in conversation these days. And here you come along with a book that declares it's a man's world. <laughs> Is that a meant to be provocative? Is it meant to be a statement in which you say, no, it is a man's world? Where did that title come from? The title most directly came from James Brown's song, It's a Man's World. Now, if you know you're James Brown, you know very high up in the lyrics comes the line, but it wouldn't be nothing without a woman or a girl. So let's state that up front. But the title is meant to be provocative, and I've written maybe 150, 200 magazine stories in my 40 years, and I'm exhausted to even say that number, but a lot of those pieces have been profiles of men. A lot of them have been profiles of women, too, but as I was discussing the possibility of doing a collection of my work with my agent, Beth Vassell, she said it would be a lot edgier if you just do profiles of men. And if you try to grapple in an introduction with what it is to be a man, what does it take? What Or what did you have to grapple with as you tried to become a man? And that interested me intellectually because unconsciously I had been pursuing that subject by writing these stories. And I realized at a certain point when I was working at the Atlanta Journal and Constitution magazine, maybe it was 1978 or 79, that there'd been a period of 16 months where I might have written 12 profiles of men. And I thought, what am I doing? And I didn't answer the question directly, but it dawned on me that I was trying to learn how to be a man. I was watching men, interesting men, some of them admirable, some of them screw-ups, 
trying to glean how they did it. Yeah, you um, you tell us, my father, you say, didn't teach me to be a man. Um, I read that sentence and I thought, gee, my father didn't teach me what it meant to be a man either. But then the second thought I had was, I'm not quite sure even what it would mean to be taught to be a man. I'm not sure what it means either. And, you know, there, I'm old school. The battle over definition of manhood and gender um, and identity has moved far beyond uh, what I'm dealing with here. People are now uh, questioning even the concept of uh, gender and uh, they believe it's mutable. I don't, uh, but um, I do think that the issues one needs to contend with to be an effective man are pressing and should be addressed. How do you protect yourself? How do you really defend yourself? Not just with your fists, but in the kind of situations you're going to confront in life. How do you live a creative life? I happen to be a writer, so I work in a creative business, but I think all work is creative. Uh, if you're bagging groceries or uh, digging uh, sewers, there's a component of using your imagination. It's not just putting one foot ahead of the other. And how do you act? Uh, I've got a section in the book on acting, and it's profiles of actors, but I'm speaking figuratively. How do, you, how do we present ourselves? And I didn't get that from my dad. I got from my dad a sense of decency and a work ethic and I hope kindness and consideration for other people. My dad was incredibly fair-minded. He was a salesman, but he would talk about concepts like fair profit. What's a fair profit? And he would be worried by uh, overcharging or taking advantage of a customer. He was an extremely ethical guy, and all of that was factory installed for me. What I had to learn, what he didn't show me, was what do you do when somebody screws you over, or how do you keep from getting screwed over? How how do you protect yourself in a office or in a corporate environment, uh, and how do you present yourself to the world? And I mean, on the most literal level, would be, you know, how do you tie a bow tie, or how do you, uh, <laughs> you know, get fitted for a tux? But I'm again speaking more figuratively. Here's what you say about what you uh, learned in writing profiles of all these uh, exceptional people. Uh, Men must be adept at fighting. You tell us at one point in the book, the first thing you see in the morning when you sit down at your computer is a paste-it note tacked to the bottom of your screen, and on it you had scrawled something that Herschel Walker told you. Every day I've got to get up and fight. And Herschel told me this at age 50. And I wrote a profile of Herschel for Playboy when he got involved in mixed martial arts fighting. And Herschel has pushed himself into so many unbelievable challenges in his life. So on one level, that statement is about being a mixed martial arts fighter, but it's, it's really not. Herschel Walker, even the great Herschel Walker, has to get up every day and put on his game face and say, I'm going to accomplish something in my day. And I'm not going to crawl under the desk. Uh, I'm not going to 
fold my hand. I may not have been dealt the best hand today, but I'm going to play the cards I have today as best I can. Okay, so in the section of essays that you've uh, put together around fighters, you say this, by fighting, I'm not talking about fisticuffs. No, by fighting, I'm talking about part of the male psyche that seems to demand some form of conflict. A man's world revolves around conflict with others and himself. I wasn't sure I knew how to relate to that observation. You do believe that men have a different sense of, is it a competitiveness in the world? How, how do you view that in a, your day-to-day life? Well, I'm a writer and I sit alone in a room by myself. <laughs> uh, so th- maybe I need to get an encounter bat and uh, swing it against the wall. Are we by nature fighters, men? Yes, I think so. In what I, way? I think we push ourselves I think we push others. I think life is a competition. Um, Now, conversely, I'm a believer in teamwork. I come out of really the world of sports and uh, don't believe in being a prima donna. I think you hit the cutoff man in baseball and you uh, throw the extra pass in basketball. And I accept all that stuff philosophically. But I think the world is hard. And I think we fight on some level for every advantage. And I think we kid ourselves to say that um, there's going to be a place made for us. I think we make our own place. I relate to that, and I bet you do too. Um, I'm competitive professionally. Mm -hmm. I want to win professionally. Mm -hmm. I, I can translate fighting to those terms. Yes. And I would think that you, having written for so many of the most important magazines in this country and having established yourself as being the guy, the go-to guy when it comes to a major profile of an important figure, that was a fight to get to the place where you were the one they called on. It It is a fight, and it's still a fight, and I'm not even sure I'm winning. I think it's, uh, I mean, that's a different issue, but that that particular business of magazine journalism is in eclipse and it's it was hard when I got into it and it's just gotten harder. That's GPB's Bill Nygut speaking with author Steve Oney. His book A Man's World is now out in paperback. Coming up we're going to hear about Oney's profile of an otherwise unsung hero. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with GPB's On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, we're revisiting a conversation with author Steve Oney. He grew up in Atlanta, got his journalism degree from the University of Georgia, and went on to write stories for Esquire, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and other publications, and books, including The Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan, and The Lynching of Leo Frank. More recently, Oni put out a collection of his articles as A Man's World. He spoke with GPB's Bill Nygut when the book was first published. It has just come out in paperback. Bill asked him about one particular profile that highlighted an otherwise unsung hero. 
In the fighter section, the first piece and a longer profile is of Chris Leon, who uh, had a troubled youth, as you tell us in the piece, uh, and was able to find himself as a Marine. Yes? The piece is called The Casualty of War, and it's about a troubled young Angelino who nearly flunked out of high school, was selling and using meth, and straightened himself up at the 11th hour and joined the Marine Corps. And the Marine Corps saved his life and took him to his death. And he was killed in combat uh, at age 20, shot by a sniper. And, and your piece focuses on his parents and how they walked th through that tragedy and tried to put their lives together in some way. To me, one of the strange truisms of the Iraq and the Afghan war is that so many of us don't know anyone who is serving. And I realized that I didn't know anyone who had been killed. So I got a list of the killed in action in Los Angeles. There were about 80 people at that time. And I called Chris Leon's family. Uh, it was the third or fourth phone call I made. And the dad picked up the phone and Chris had been killed a couple months before, and it was as if the father had been waiting for me to phone him ever since he got the news. And I drove out to his house, and his wife was there, and we had an hour-long conversation, at the end of which Chris's mom pulled down the back of her sweater and showed me that she'd had Chris's face tattooed into her shoulder blade. And it was such a intimate, tragic thing to share with somebody. And I realized these people want to tell me their story. There, there aren't going to be many limits with these people. But nonetheless, um, I went back to Los Angeles and returned. Uh, they lived in the northern part of uh, L.A. County, and I returned to their house the next Sunday and went to church with them without taking any notes. I just thought that's a gesture of good faith. I'm going to show these people that I'm not a vulture. I'm, I'm here because I respect what they're going through. And then the next week, I started taking copious notes. And the essay is um, very moving, and it, it does accomplish what you're talking about. It helps us, uh, it, it puts real faces and real emotion into these um, casualties of war that we really don't quite understand. But but it's it's what you chose to close it with. It's the quote that you choose as the closing piece. Uh, you quote his dad, Jim. We've lost not just Chris, but our future, Jim says, one late winter afternoon sitting in the den. There will be no wedding, no grandchildren, no one to leave any of our possessions to. Ahead of us is nothing. It's just a hole. You knew when you heard him say that at some point in your conversations, didn't you, that that would have to be the way you'd end this piece? Yes. I knew it would come near the end, but uh, this is why you need a good editor. I wrote another couple of paragraphs mm. after that, and my editor said, when I turned in the final draft, he said, you, you overshot the runway. Let's just stop it right here. You're right. The editor help, helped you in that because that ending is, from my point of view, chilling and complete. Thank you. I think what that ending does is, what is loss? It's final. And it's an ending. And that piece is about the extinguishing of a 20-year-old's life. It's over. It's over for everyone. And yet, I think Chris Leon 
had a very successful life. I admire him a lot. I think he straightened himself out. I think his service in the Marine Corps was admirable. He was a great Marine, and his I spoke to everyone. I spoke to his captain, his major, everyone associated with him. He was a corporal, but they were all completely taken with him and devastated by his death. And that goes to the larger point about fighting. Chris was in a bad place as a sophomore in high school. He was on his way uh, to drug addiction, arrest at the best, but he fought his way out of it. He had to fight and confront some real issues. So that's what I mean by fighting. He I get fought his way out of a bad place into a good place. Now, unfortunately, he died, but yeah. you know, we're all going to die. And he died, as far as I'm concerned, in a very noble manner. You have um, in your essay, Hollywood Fixer, which you wrote for Playboy in 2010, uh, I was struck by the lead. Uh, we all work hard uh, at anybody who's been a print journalist, uh, whether it's short form or long form, understands how important it is to find the right lead. And I couldn't help but think this was a great lead. Do you mind if I Thank read you. it to please, you? Please, I, I liked it, too. When Kate Moss, just arrived from London, emerges from the Tom Bradley Terminal at Los Angeles International Airport, the paparazzi swarm, 30, maybe 40 in number. They will do almost anything to get a shot of the model. All that stands between their two-foot lenses and her multi-million dollar face is Aaron Cohen. That's a great lead. Thank you. <laughs> Who's you know, Aaron Cohen? <laughs> Aaron Cohen runs a um, personal security firm in Los Angeles, and he protects stars. And he does a lot of other stuff, but that's the main thing he does. And he's a Jewish kid from Beverly Hills who, when he graduated from Beverly Hills High, instead of going off to a fancy college, got a one-way ticket, uh, flew to Israel, joined the Army, and because he's a very talented and smart guy, was recruited to be in the Israeli Special Services. And he acquired some exceptionally lethal skills uh, in that position, which made him highly marketable when he came back to Los Angeles. Uh, and, you know, we think celebrities, you know, they're spoiled rotten. They are spoiled rotten. Uh, and they have uh, multi-million dollar apparatuses just to prop up their ego. But they are also in danger. And there are stalkers and the paparazzi are the least of it. And Aaron Cohen has found a niche for himself, providing security against stalkers and the kind of people who prey on celebrities. And luckily for me, the, the lead to that piece, uh, I wrote near the end of the article, but someone in Aaron's entourage had taken cell phone video of this whole encounter with Kate Moss at the Tom Bradley Terminal. So I had, you know, Aaron had told me about it, but then I could watch it. And uh, I just sort of described what I saw. And the Aaron is now branched out into uh, a bigger security arena. You see him on CNN and Fox talking about uh, terrorism and protecting uh, sites against terrorist attacks. It's a really interesting essay. People should uh, read it because uh, his career has been fascinating. He comes into contact with some of the world's greatest celebrities. He has interesting techniques that you describe for various ways that he keeps track and protects them. Uh, so he's another example of a fighter. Yeah, he's a fighter. And he's strangely enough, he's completely non-confrontational. 
uh, his whole method is to avoid conflict. So he tries to think out whatever the potential pitfalls his clients might face, address them intellectually before they could even happen, and and nothing does happen. When he's protecting somebody, I mean, yes, he was out front walking Kate Moss through that crowd of paparazzi, but usually you never even see him. Yeah. Uh, you have a section of the book on creators uh, because uh, it, in talking about the things that you've learned profiling men, aside from fighting, you've said they must create. And I think in your essay on Robert Penn Warren, the great uh, poet, novelist, um, it really is a, an extraordinary example of, of a creative, a great creative force in American culture. Mr. Warren was a hero to me, and I read all the King's Men when I was going to summer school in 1973 at the University of Georgia, and I convinced the Atlanta Journal and Constitution magazine to fly me up to Vermont, where Warren has his, had his summer home, and I spent a week uh, with Mr. Warren and his wife, uh, the equally creative Eleanor Clark, who was a National Book Award winner for her nonfiction book about oyster farming and uh, oyster harvesting in France. And I was um, ecstatic about the week. I was uh, very nervous because I admired him so much, uh, but he put me at ease. And I stayed in a little hotel down the valley from where he lived and would show up at his house each morning about nine o'clock and we would talk for a couple of hours and then take a hike into the woods and uh, then we would have dinner and drinks with his wife and whoever happened to be gathering. So it was a magical week, a magical week with one of the giants who really invented Southern literature and you know through him I could reach back to um, all the greats of the Vanderbilt fugitives, uh, John Crow Ransom and Alan Tate. That and- was uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about in terms of him. I, so uh, you, you, you uh, tell us about his uh, academic history. He went to Vanderbilt. Where did uh, Warren grow up? Warren grew up in Clarksville, Tennessee, okay. which is on the Tennessee-Kentucky line. So he ended up at Vanderbilt. And I, was, I had never heard until I, I read your piece anything about the fugitives at Vanderbilt University, part of a group of young intellectuals. Their quote was, the fugitive flees from nothing faster than the high caste Brahmins of the Old South. And John Crow Ransom was sort of their leader, yeah? He was their leader. He was writing publishable poetry. Everybody else was younger, although the fugitives were college students. They were merchants in Nashville, and they met every week and read poetry and critiqued their own poetry. And they were intellectually cutthroat, but personally quite kind to one another. And they, it was like a book group where instead of reading texts by other authors, you were reading your own text to other writers and then vigorously critiquing them. And it was, it was competitive and it was, it's how they all learned how to write. But you also, you tell us that this was one of the most, uh, I don't remember the language you used, but this was an exceptional group, one of the finest literary groups in the country. Yes, and all sorts of uh, afterlife. Uh, There was a man named Andrew Lytle who was in the group uh, and who only recently died, taught at uh, the University of the South in in Swanee. I think he died in 2006 or seven. but uh, he was Flannery O'Connor's tutor and really 
helped Flannery O'Connor when she was first coming along. He was also, at a certain point, on the faculty at the University of Florida, and he was Harry Cruz's teacher when Harry Cruz was a student at the University of Florida. So you can really trace what happened in Nashville in the 1920s to what's happening today in Southern literature, because there are now a number of very fine writers who worked with someone like Harry Cruz. For instance, the um, suspense novelist, Michael Conley. He was Harry Cruz's student at the University of Florida. So what happened in Nashville keeps on giving. I think it'd make a great book, actually. They were um, not politically correct. They were conservative, uh, and but they were of their time and of their place. And they were personally very generous. You write about, uh, <laughs> you got to observe the war in marriage uh, it, it, up close, <laughs> and it, it is an interesting story. You you, you say that uh, Eleanor Clark, her marriage to Warren is one of sweet collaboration wed to a propensity for ceaseless oratorical battle. They disagreed on politics, people, literature, psychology, and economics. She is the liberal Eastern aristocrat. He's the clodhopper scholar with dung on his boots and poetry in his heart. And you describe a scene at the dinner table where they get into an argument about the Roosevelt family. Uh, describe the battle and then the aftermath once your piece was published. I was witness to an incredible back and forth about Franklin Roosevelt. It was high rhetoric, high japery. And Eleanor Clark had been a Marxist, and uh, she was extremely liberal. Robert Penn Warren was... He was conservative, and he also had a lot of devilry in him, so he liked to poke her about her liberal uh, opinions. But he started in on Franklin Roosevelt and said, the thing you need to understand about Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt Longworth, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, had told Warren this, is that Mr. President Roosevelt was crippled, and he wanted all Americans to be a cripple, to be crippled and to have someone to push him around. And Warren said this to his wife, knowing he was going to set her off. And he did. And they fought back and forth for about 20 minutes. And it was good humored, but there was an edge to it where you sense that they might fall off uh, the edge at any moment. Uh, but they kept pulling back, pushing further, pulling back. And I had taken a tape recorder with me and I had the tape recorder running. So I have a verbatim transcript of this back and forth. And I used it in the piece. And I think it's funny and I think it's dear and I think it's such it's rhetoric of such high quality that you would never hear this kind of talk around most American dining tables because most Americans aren't smart enough to speak so literally. I'm certainly not. And uh, so I wrote it up in the middle of the piece because I thought it was so revealing. And after my piece came out, Mr. Warren sent me a four page single space type letter that he began by saying, you know, Eleanor and I are so grateful to know you. We consider you a new friend, and uh, we hope you'll feel free to call on us and visit us anytime you're near because we want you to be a part of our lives. And I never saw Mr. Warren again, but he was good to his word. He and I uh, stayed in touch through letters and postcards uh, for the next 10 years, the last 10 years of his life. But he then added, but... I think you've made a couple of factual mistakes in the piece, and they were minor mistakes uh, that I corrected. I had somebody's age wrong, and some of them were anachronisms. Uh, he used to run a lot. 
to get himself into a a zone where he could write his poetry. And I was writing this piece in the 70s, and I wrote that he jogged. And, you know, he corrected me and said, you know, we did not jog in the 20s. We ran. And uh, but then he took me to task for the section about Roosevelt. And he, he thought I'd slightly invaded his privacy by recording that. But he didn't say you shouldn't have done it. What he really did was he realized that he was the subject and I was the author. And so he pushed back at me, but he didn't say you shouldn't have done it. Uh, he just said, I'm a little sorry you did it. At the end of your piece, can I, sure. I I'm reading your words. Well, I hope you're you. okay I, I with that. that. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Late one afternoon, as occasional gusts of wind blew out of the mountains, bringing slight respite from the heat, Warren sat on his front porch facing a visitor. The room was aglow in the roseate hues of a fading day. Ensconced in a comfortable rocking chair, his eagle-beaked, strong-boned, ruddy old face twisted into a frown. He answered the visitor's questions, except for their voices. There was no sound. And then you ask him the key question. Are you sad about getting old? It's a beautiful moment to set up that question. Thank you. And he was sad about getting old. And he was experiencing what we all experience. And it's a great tragedy. And I'm now 62 and I'm starting to experience it. My friends are dying. Uh, and uh, he went on to talk very poignantly about one of his best friends, the great novelist Catherine Ann Porter, who was then in her mid-80s, and she was dying. And he spoke very lovingly of her, almost as if they were lovers, but he was quick to interject, we were never lovers, but there was something between us. And now that I see her being extinguished, now that I see there's going to be, to use the phrase I used in the Chris Leon piece, this hole in my life, I am deeply, deeply sad. And that's one of the hard things about getting old. You know, that's a question that I have thought I should ask virtually everyone who comes in to be a guest on Two Way Street. How does it feel to be getting older? Because it is one of the most fundamental questions. I'm now 70. It's one of the most fundamental and uh, most... Uh, shattering kind of moments that you contend with getting old. It's just hard. I mean, there's the, I mean, the alternative is worse. Uh, <laughs> and the, on some level, I th think, as you were telling me before we began taping, you can get better. Your mind gets sharper. You're in more control of your work. Uh, you're, uh, if you have good health, you can be incredibly productive. And I think it's the sense of loss. And you look at pictures of yourself from your 20s and you think, who is that person? That I'm not that person anymore. And that's just a blow to your ego, if nothing else. And, and then, you know, you, lo you lose your friends and you lose, and the world goes on without you. The world uh, becomes something, I mean, we're living in this time of extraordinarily rapid change uh, because of technology. And, and the world I grew into as a 22-year-old working at the Atlanta newspapers doesn't exist anymore because of technological change. 
That is author Steve Oney speaking with GPB's Bill Nygut. Oney's book, A Man's World, is out in paperback this month. Coming up, we'll explore Oney's profiles of Georgians, like the influential architect John Portman. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, we're listening to my colleague Bill Nygut's conversation with Steve Oney. Oney's been a journalist for more than 40 years, and he's profiled a range of people. In 2017, he published A Man's World, a collection of his profiles of men, some famous, some infamous, many previously unknown. It's out in paperback this month. Oney spoke with GPB's Bill Nygut, who delved into the Georgians profiled in the book. I want to take a quick stroll through a few other of your essays, if I may. There are a number of Atlanta uh, people featured in here. Uh, in 1987, Esquire published your profile of John Portman. And we don't have to, we all, John Portman, the great builder uh, uh, of downtown Atlanta, of downtown Detroit, you and I could sit here and probably have a really healthy argument about how I believe John Portman destroyed downtown Uh Atlanta. But in reading your essays, you seem to have a lot of admiration for it. Let's not even go there. You know what I want to talk about with the Portman essay, I believe, his hair. (laughs) Yes, I open my profile of John Portman with a with an extended description of his hairdo. He has probably the most outrageous comb over in Christendom. <laughs> and it begins as a salty brown swell coming off the edge of his head. And he's not content merely to sweep it over uh, his bald spot. It's arranged into a sculpture. It's as if he's wearing an Alexander sculpture on his head. And it has motion and fluidity, and it's really a, I don't know how long it takes him each morning to do it, but people thought in my paragraph about this that I was being mean, but I wasn't being mean because I had this burst of insight that John Portman wears his design philosophy right atop his head. It's outrageous (laughs) and defensive at the same time. And when you go into downtown Atlanta and you see all these buildings that John Portman designed that are closed off from the street. That's the defensive part. And yet, when you see the Polaris Lounge and the extraordinary um, playful gestures that Portman makes on his interiors, those are the outrageous yeah. you parts just, of his Here's what you say about his hair. <laughs> it's an outrageously conceived, meticulously arranged wave that takes off from one fringe of his balding pate like a tsunami and surfs across his skull, breaking and rising in salty brown swells until it crashes over his opposite ear. It's hard for me to even say that without starting to laugh. He did not like that. He did not like it. <laughs> I, 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 well, you know, none of us... Here's here's a basic rule of life. Forget about fighting and acting. Just don't mess with somebody's hair. <laughs> don't mess with their hair. I want to talk about, again, uh, I think a wonderful way in which you set up 
uh, an essay about someone who's just passed away. Um, Greg Allman, uh, as we all know, just died within the past uh, few weeks. And you profiled him for Esquire in 1984, and you connected with Allman at a time when his life was not going well. He was heavily into drugs. The, his, his musical life had kind of collapsed around him. And, and here's what's wonderful to me about that. You're on the tour bus with Greg Allman. He's at a low point in his career. The band is on the outskirts of New York City. And as they're heading east, uh, they tell a story that conjures up a time that he played Madison Square Garden. Right. Greg starts talking about walking into Madison Square Garden and hearing the roar of the crowd and going up onto the stage. And his brother Dwayne is right in front of him and light is coming over Greg's beautiful wood Hammond organ and it's a dream. It's actually a dream he'd had even as a kid, and here it was being realized, and he's just finished sharing this memory with the other band members who are sitting with me at the front of the bus. But then you say, but that was long ago, when New York draws so tantalizingly close that Allman can almost reach out and touch it, the bus veers west onto another highway. That is a remarkable way to set up the career path that he was on at the point that you encountered him. There's New York, but it's no longer his. He was headed to play a date in Hackettstown, New Jersey. Five-member band. They're getting $5,000 for the date, out of which they got to pay their hotel rooms, uh, their manager, the roadies. So maybe he's making $750, $500 for that night's work. And this was a guy who, at the peak of his career in the Allman Brothers, was making, the band was making 300000 or more a night. So he was at rock bottom. He was playing Holiday Inn lounges. And I followed him around for a week on the East Coast, and almost everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Equipment failures, bandmates getting sick. And uh, then I hooked up with him at the end of the tour. He was in Los Angeles, and... Um, I was with him when he did a guest appearance on Thick of the Night, which was Alan Thick's talk show. And Alan Thick was an incredibly nice guy who also just recently died. Uh, but it was a struggling show. It was the only show that ever really got a zero in the Nielsen ratings. It was at the rock bottom. And Greg was, among the other guests, was a psychic named Kenny Kingston, who was trying to communicate with the spirit of Marilyn Monroe via what he said was one of her fingernails. It was, you know, this was late night television happening in prime time. And there was Greg. And after he talks to Thick and the band plays a song, he goes back to a seedy hotel and he's alcoholic. He's in AA. He's trying not to drink. He's drinking a little bit, but he's trying not to. He orders a big jug of iced tea and it's 11 o'clock at night and he falls into his bed and just says, I'm beat. That's the end of the piece. I'm but, beat. But you end up, in, you, you had great admiration for his spirit. He did not give up. Yeah, Greg didn't. He was not beat. That was the irony. Uh, he went on to a uh, 30 plus year career as a solo artist. Uh, his gigs at the Beacon Theater on the west side in New York, he had a 12 or 15 year standing date there and he's got a new album coming out produced by Don Was. There's a 
piece on him in the new issue of Rolling Stone by Michael Gilmore that I haven't read yet, but it, it's a piece that kind of picks up where my piece ends. It's about the incredible second act in Greg Allman's life. And Greg Allman, um, he had guts. He had some stick to and he was dealt a very bad hand and, and played through it and had a productive second act in his life. All right. We've only got a few minutes left. There are so many essays in here that we could talk about, but of course you would prefer it if people would buy the book and read it. And I understand that. Um, but let's talk about it. Can we do a little quick back and sure. forth? Uh, Every interviewer undoubtedly says, who is your favorite interview? I will not go there because that would be ridiculous. So I'm going to try a few other things. (laughs) Funniest interview. Tracy Allman, uh, a piece I did on her for GQ. It's not in the book. Smartest interview. Robert Penn Warren. Most beautiful. Anne Margaret, a piece I did for the New York Times Arts and Leisure section. I sat with her on her porch in her Beverly Hills house uh, late in the evening. Uh, The porch was lit only by votive candles. She was about 50 years old and was stunning, even at 50. And she was wearing some sort of aquamarine wrap that was so (laughs) such a great contrast to her reddish hair and milky complexion. And we talked. uh, She had a, a new dance show that was going to Radio City Music Hall. And we talked about that show, and we talked about the dance numbers with Elvis and Viva Las Vegas. Oh, my gosh. So that was, that was very close to every man's fantasy. The person it was hardest for you to tear yourself away from when the work was finished. I adored this guy, Brandon Tartikoff, who was the president of NBC Television. You became and, friends, uh, We became you? friends. He's... The thing about writing magazine pieces is you make very few friends and you make very few enemies. They're transactions. Uh, but I actually became f- quite friendly with Brandon. And we, he was a good weekend softball player, and we played softball together for the next 10 years. Here's how you close your, your book. Uh, if the whole book is about essays of men and you've tried to learn more about life as you went through your uh, uh, stories with them, you say this. The solution is to face whatever it is. You can't run. It's always out there. The correct move is to confront the darkness, even if you have to seek it. That's what Harry Cruz advised in the earliest story in this collection, written in 1977 when I was a kid. Here I was in my, ni- in my 50s, coming back around to the same issue. It never ends. Fighting, creating, acting, embracing danger. These are the things I had to teach myself. I hope that's a fair summation. Well, Steve, it's been a real joy to be able to talk to you. Uh, The book is A Man's World Portraits, a gallery of fighters, creators, actors, and desperados. And welcome home, brother. Hey, thank you, Bill. (laughs) Or uh, since we're on the radio, welcome south, brother. That's what I should have said. Author and journalist Steve Oney speaking with GPB's Bill Nygut about his book, A Man's World. It just came out in paperback this month. GPB's Grant Blankenship brings us this audio postcard about the power of food and nostalgia from the British Tea Room restaurant in the city of Warner Robins. Flag's not flying. We're like the Queen. She's not at Buckingham Palace, and we're not here either. My name is Jeanette Francis. What do I do? I cook. 38 to 12 years. 
we have a little tea room and I do all the cooking in the back. I've been here over 30 years right now. Yes, I used to go home and stock up and come back. And then when my uh, parents passed away, I thought, hmm, can't get my bisto for my gravy. So I opened the shop. It makes me feel warm and cozy to have a good English meal because you miss it. It's like looking at old photographs. I am Elizabeth Douglas, or Lizzie Douglas, and um, I've been working here with Jan for four years, nearly five years. Deep down, it's the proper English Sunday dinners, roast beef, Yorkshire pudding, roast potatoes, mashed, mashed potatoes, as many vegetables as you can get on your plate, and proper meat um, gravy. It just takes you back. When you do a nice gravy, it takes you back to, like, your mum used to make. And it just gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling. Things that fly off the shelves right now are sausages, bacon, mince pies. My mum's still alive. She's, she's 90. No, she's not. She's 84 on the 6th of December. So that'll be a time when I just want to give my mum a hug. And everybody's fine. It's just... I just miss being with them. As we all do. And to be honest with you, if I hadn't found the British Pantry and Tea Room four years ago, whenever it was, then um, I don't know what I'd have done with my time. And it just gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling that you belong. That was Jeanette Francis, owner of the British Tea Room in Warner Robins, and her friend and employee, Lizzie Douglas, on how food reminds them of home. Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor of news for GBB. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jake Troyer. You're invited to join every On Second Thought conversation. You can go to our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can follow us on Instagram at GPB News or email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. And you can go, and we always love to hear your voice. Leave a message at 404-500-9457. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Virginia Prescott.